0: Thanks for coming out. It's great to be with you. Greetings from Michigan and Western Seminary. So I'm hoping during our time together we'll be able to explore a theology of justice drawn from the story of Scripture, be able to explore what that might look like within our callings, so how to sort of move from that to how we might live that out. Uh, But one way I think might be helpful to think about what we're doing is understanding what is the nature of the Christian life. What is at the heart of Christian discipleship? What is it that God really asks of us? Hopefully, that's something you've spent time pondering. When I became a Christian in early high school, I was invited into a vision of the Christian life through my church youth group and the church itself. And I've spent time through the years sort of pondering that vision. This is, if I had to put it in a picture form, looking back, this would be the vision of the Christian life I had for the first few years. Of my life as a Christian. So you can reflect on it a bit with me. Um, I thought it was a lot about intimacy with God, and I did a lot of private spiritual disciplines. So, a lot of daily quiet times, as well as actual hiking, um, rhythms of solitude and Sabbath. I thought sort of that mountain-high kind of experience of intimacy was really what God most wanted. And there was a lot of beauty, a sense of being in God's presence, a lot of glory. You may have noticed there are a few things missing from this picture, such as other people (laughs) and the world. So... Through the years, I've come to see that there are pieces of this for which I'm really grateful, but pieces I'd want to add to it. So years later, I come across another picture, and I don't have an an easy way to fit this picture into my first picture. So we'll call this Slave Bula. He lives in India, He needed to take out a loan one day. Emergency medical situation came up. He didn't have the money he needed. He went to get a loan, probably worth about $25. He didn't realize that the person making the loan really didn't want him to pay it back because the collateral for the loan was his life. So when he was unable to pay it, he gets taken into bondage, moved 1,000 miles from his home, and sent to this brick-making facility where he worked 18-hour days. Hot, grueling sun, beatings if you try to take a break, no way to connect with the outside world. But somehow, one night, he's able to get out, find a phone, and call his brother and tell him where he is. Now, most of the time, in the region that he was in, that would have led nowhere. But in this instant, the person who answered the phone was willing to to take that and follow it up and connected with International Justice Mission. And after many, many months of painstaking work and piling, making the case, they were able to rescue him and about 500 other people at the same time. But my first picture of the Christian life was mostly about me and God. And if other people were involved, it was to invite them into their intimate relationship with God I didn't understand how from a faith perspective I was called to care about someone like Bula. So what we want to look at tonight is why through scripture that might in fact be part of our callings as Christians to attend to such issues of injustice and the people who suffer from them. This is a picture that I now look at to remind me, help me think about discipleship and formation. You can reflect with me on this one. It's drawing on biblical imagery related to trees. Be like trees planted by streams of water in Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17. It's a cluster, right? a grove of trees. So there's a a communal vision right at the heart of it. Which I think we see at the heart of God's story, which we'll look at in a moment. It's got very deep roots, the water, living water of Christ, right? We're rooted in Christ. And our roots overlap. But you'll see there's a lot of stuff beneath the rocky soil, right? It's not necessarily easy. There is still growth that needs to happen. And our work of being in a family together also takes work, right? We need reconciliation with God, and with one another through Christ. So it's sort of a slow-growth model of discipleship, right? This is sort of our whole lives lived for the sake of God and God's glory together. But the top of the picture is as important. For what purpose? It is... God's desire to have intimate relationship with us. And I believe it's also, as we look closely at scripture, God's desire to see us bear fruit in the world. So you think about what trees do. A lot of different things. One is take in carbon dioxide and offer life-giving oxygen. They make the world a better place. They enable us to breathe. They also offer beauty, shade, which can in fact be a matter of life and death, In certain regions they offer places to play place to hang a swing place to read a book but they offer something to the world that is connected to those deep roots but goes out from there and i think importantly for us to remember is that trees don't only offer life-giving oxygen to fellow trees right? The oak tree doesn't say, I'm only going to do good for older oak trees. They actually make everything around them a better place. So as we think about what God wants from us as Christians, could it be something more like this? A people of God, invited into God's family, rooted in Christ, reconciled to God, connected to one another for the sake of the life of the world, to offer oxygen and beauty and goodness to the world. So hold that in mind and we can reflect on that in the discussion time if you like. So one of the ways that God has helped me think about what he wants of us was writing this book, The Justice Calling, which Alicia mentioned. And that book came out of a few different things. One was working at Hope College, a Christian college, and meeting with a number of students who were really passionate about seeking justice. And one day in a row, three students in a row, freshmen, said, I am called to move to Africa to seek justice. And they were different. One was HIV-AIDS, one was clean water, one was the orphan crisis. And I thought, that's amazing. When I was in college, no one, at least no Christians, were talking about justice. It was a very significant change. I had first had an inkling that justice mattered after I graduated reading the book of Isaiah for my quiet times and realizing there's so much about justice in here. I've never heard a sermon or a talk or anything about this. How can that be? This seems so central to what God cares about. So I had a sense that justice mattered. In grad school, I looked a lot at Augustine of Hippo, who has a lot to say about justice, and especially that we need Jesus for justice, because we need Jesus to be rightly ordered. And so we, so he had a very strong sense that Jesus and justice went together. Then I have all these students in my office saying, we're called to seek justice. And I had a few thoughts at the same time. One was, oh, I love this passion. I hope it's there when they're 40 and married and have a mortgage. So that's what the firecracker is helping us think through, is what does it look like to have a passion for justice, for the kingdom, and for it to last, right? Not to be like a firecracker where you wake up and you see things or you read about Bula and you think, I'm called to do something, but to think, we need deep roots that are going to sustain this if this is this important. And I thought, I hope that this passion for justice is really connected to their ongoing lives, So not just for these few years when they have mobility and energy, but their whole life long. So what does it look like for all of us? If this is this important, what does it look like for all of us to have this woven into our lives and callings? At the same time, my future co-author, Bethany, was working for International Justice Mission. And people were talking about the rise of the justice generation, evangelicals discovering this biblical aspect to seeking justice. And she had the same worry. She was seeing a lot of firecracker energy, but wanting and worrying that it didn't necessarily have the deep roots. So we came together. And through writing this, even though we had both been Christians for a long time, we discovered that there was so much more to learn than we had encountered before related to Scripture and justice. The book unexpectedly took us about five years to write. Um, And we had the privilege of being immersed in Scripture almost that whole time as we wrote this. And we began to see more clearly than ever, and Bethany had created the Biblical Justice Institute IJM with curriculum. I mean, she wasn't new to this, but just being immersed in that way, that from the beginning of Scripture to the end, we see a God who longs for justice and righteousness in the world and who calls us as his people to join him in seeking it. And that's part of what it means to be God's people woven all the way through. Okay. Who is willing to venture some guesses about what this piece of art might represent? This is one of those, it doesn't have to be a right answer question. So, it is what comes to mind as you look at this picture? Anything? I hear fire and water. Yeah oh the messiness of justice in the real world interesting any others no so my son who's now nine when he was four he went through this stage of drawing pictures and wanted me to guess what they were which was terrifying (laughs) I hardly ever knew (laughs) so he drew this one and it turns out it's a Hope Calvin basketball game, which is a huge rivalry in our area. In fact, the ESPN ranked it number three or four of the college rivalries in the nation, with, of course, Duke UNC as number one. We're the only Division three rivalry to make it. Um, So you can see, if you look closely, a figure, kind of a stick figure, and then the three-point line, and maybe a basket over here, an H-O in the upper corner. When I looked at this picture, as I was immersed in thinking about justice, I thought, this gets at something. It is very hard to say what justice is. For all the passion around justice, I think it's hard to put into words what is justice what is it that we're seeking maybe injustice is a little bit easier to recognize at least not always but sometimes you see things and you think that's clearly wrong that's not the way it's supposed to be but how do we articulate what is supposed to be so for christians this is where we need to look very closely at scripture and jesus christ I know some of you are aware of a statement on social justice that came out earlier this fall. A number of Christians got together and are concerned that social justice has become too trendy and is taking over and is compromising the gospel. It has almost 10,000 signatures. One of their concerns is the trendiness of justice, that people are sort of jumping on without taking the time to say, what? is justice from a Christian perspective? Is this rooted in scripture and in the person and work of Jesus Christ? There's a lot I don't agree with about that statement, but I am empathetic to that concern. And I do see that sometimes, that we, we, we see what's wrong and we want to make it right, but how do we as Christians let that vision of right be shaped by God himself? it takes some intentionality by the grace of God. So that's where this immersion in the story of Scripture, to try to allow or invite the Spirit to sort of refine our understandings and allow them to sort of align more and more with His becomes really important. I don't think that means we can't learn from justice efforts in the world. In fact, I think that's another place where tree imagery can be very helpful if you think of deep roots leading to big, wide boughs where you can find overlap, maybe different sources and different reasons, but maybe over here you can overlap caring about mass incarceration and over here about trafficking and over here about race. We can find overlap and we can learn from each other. I do think it's important to know what our roots are and what God asks about and wants for the world. And I think it's important to do that with the whole story of Scripture. So let me, let's do another visual. Let's see here. Okay, I know it's a little Bible. It's my travel one. Can, how much of the Bible would you say is in this middle chunk compared to sort of this side and this side? Three quarters, I'm hearing. Any other guesses about that? Okay, sometimes as Christians, we have a tendency to move from the fall, Genesis 3, to Matthew, Jesus. This is a pretty big chunk of the Bible in between. And I want to contend that everything that happens in here really matters for us too. And I think in relation to the mass shooting at the synagogue, it's important to remember that we are part of God's family, our Jewish family family. And this story that goes before us matters to us. So we're going to spend some time walking through the story, including this sort of chunk in the middle. Before we do that, there are, I think, five words that kind of help us enter into that story. There are a lot more. And the story can be told in lots of different ways. I'm sure you've heard it lots of different ways. So we're looking at it specifically with an eye to justice tonight. Um, So trying to get our minds around... What is justice? What does it mean to seek justice? So my son, the year after he went through his drawing picture phase, (laughs) broke his wrist three times in one summer. Two two at once, and then another one again. The first one set was kind of mild, but when he rebroke the right one, don't mean to be too graphic, it was very clear that it was not right. So our arms are meant to go in a certain way, right? Straight. And his was protruding, very clearly not right. So as we think about what is justice, could we say that there's a way God created the world, a way that it's supposed to work, a way in which we are supposed to thrive and creation is supposed to thrive, and injustice is what results when things go wrong, like the jutting bone. Think of who's got an ortho, orthodontist, right? Setting right your teeth, helping them go the right way, right? So there's a, there's a way that's right. And so the most, the shorthand, closest biblical way to translate justice is setting things right. Very simple. Setting things right is a, the translation of the Hebrew word, mishpat, most often used for justice. No, we'll look in a moment. Before, that implies something's already wrong. So we, we'll say in creation, there was an original rightness. <laughs> things got distorted, and we're trying to sort of figure out what does it look like to join in God's work of setting things Right? So that's helpful to a degree, but then we have to say, well, what is right? (laughs) How do we know what right is? Right? So that's another place where we have to look at Jesus Christ, right? The embodiment of justice and righteousness, the righteous one, and scripture to know what right is. So if we think about what's right, we come to the word righteousness. Now in my background, this doesn't have super positive connotations. I don't know what you come up with when you think about righteousness. I didn't think of sort of holier-than-thou, or someone who keeps all the laws, or it has a lot to do with sort of my vertical relationship with God. When we look at scripture, that is not actually what righteousness means. So, let's look at someone like Job. He's described as the most upright person in the land there's no more no one more righteous than job that 's sort of why he 's targeted um, for the sufferings so this is how job is described he 's describing himself but I think it's accurate he's talking about sort of longing for the days that have gone by so this is into his suffering for the days when I was in my prime when god 's intimate friendship blessed my house so there is that sense of right relationship with God right he has this intimate friendship with God look how that manifest itself whoever heard me spoke well of me and those who saw me commended me because i rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him the man who was dying blessed me i made the widow's heart sing i put on righteousness as my clothing justice was my robe and my turban i was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame i was a father to the needy i took up the case of the stranger So Job, the righteous one, in deep, intimate relationship with God, and the way that shows itself is in how he lives in relation to others. So righteousness in the Old Testament, New Testament as well, but in the Old Testament, it was a deeply communal word. You could not be considered righteous if you didn't treat everyone in the community rightly. That doesn't mean the same, I wouldn't treat my spouse the same way I treated those with whom I worked. But there were covenant laws to guide all those relationships. And a person was righteous if they had right relationship with God and were rightly loving everyone in the community. Deeply relational. When justice and righteousness are paired, which they often are but not always, it has a particular emphasis. There's an English grammatical word, hendiatis. So if I was to say, I'm sick and tired, sick and tired of my kids waking me up at 5 a.m., right? it's not actually grammatically correct, but you do it for emphasis. That's when justice and righteousness appear together. Biblical scholars say, that's what's going on. It's for emphasis. And it's emphasizing what we might today translate social justice. This sort of right relationship with God that flows into seeking what's right and just in the world. And it's a recurring pairing in Scripture. One example Psalm 33 5, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. So we all know we're supposed to love God and love neighbor. Biblically, that love is paired with righteousness and justice. One easy way of thinking about righteousness is that it has up, in, and out dimensions. So up, it does matter that, we're, that we have right relationship with God. And that does something inside of us, and it's always supposed to flow out to how we live in the world and what we're seeking in the world, up, in, and out. Righteousness. Okay, another word, hesed may be very familiar to you, but I will admit that I, it was new to me when I started researching for this book. It's a word that's very hard to translate from the Hebrew, so the words you see at the bottom are different ways of translating it. Sometimes you'll see it steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Mercy, loving kindness. One biblical scholar describes it as love in action, and I think that is the most helpful translation Just as I read, the earth is full of God's unfailing love connected to righteousness and justice, that God's love in action is central to the story of Scripture. What prompts God to create, to remain faithful even after we sin, to make covenant with Abraham, to remain faithful to the covenant, to send Jesus Christ, to remain faithful to the church, to send the Spirit. It's God's love in action. And I gave it away by putting Micah 6.8 on there it's also a call on God's people. So it's God's love and action, and it's also supposed to be true of God's people. So Micah 6.8, Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Justly is mishpat, seek justice, seek what's right. Mercy is hesed. So we are called to actively seek what's right, put love into action, and walk humbly with our God. Some of our church traditions, and we can talk about why that is, if we want to in the discussion time, have kind of separated things out. They've emphasized maybe more the walk humbly with our God part, righteousness in the vertical, right relationship with God. Think of my image, my original image of discipleship, and not as much how that's supposed to play out in our social worlds, in the life of the world. Scripture does not separate those. When we get to the New Testament, It's it's even harder to see, but it's even closer. So Hebrew, there's two different words for justice and righteousness, but in Greek, it's the same root word. And anytime you see a word translated righteousness or justice, it could be the other one. It's an editor's discernment about which word is most fitting. But they do have different meanings to our ears, right? So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Strikes me as different than seek first the kingdom of God And his justice because we've interpreted righteousness more as the relationship with God part and it's harder for us not with the the ears of the Hebrews (laughs) to see that those were so closely linked so anytime you see one or the other feel free to I, I think doing both is the most helpful because we do need that restored relationship with God and it's out of that that we then are free to seek what's right in the world. And Romans is a great place to look because it has so many word plays. (laughs) You've been justified and made just and, and set right so that you can seek what's right. And the original hearers would have seen all those connections between our justification in Christ and seeking what's just and right in the world. Ways that are harder for us to see in our English categories and for some historical reasons. Okay. Holiness. Another word that's beautiful but can, I think, leave us with a lot of different connotations because technically it means set apart, right? So it can lead to the idea that we as God's people are to be removed from the world, me on the mountaintop. But look at Isaiah 5.16, the Lord Almighty is exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. So somehow God's holiness is connected to justice and righteousness. So this is, I think, especially to me, clear, where we need to look to Scripture and Jesus to understand holiness. Because I think we come in with a lot of notions of what that means. So so if Jesus Christ is the most holy one who ever lived, because he's God in the flesh, (laughs) what do we know about Jesus? He came near, right? He entered the broken, fallen, sinful world. And even within that, he entered in, right? He's the one who touched the lepers and crossed social lines and ate with unclean people and did stuff on the Sabbath he wasn't supposed to, right? So if Jesus is God, the Holy One of God in the flesh, and we see in Jesus that to be holy then is to be set apart perhaps by drawing near to set things right the the first time the word holy is used in the Old Testament is to describe the Sabbath which is a time to dwell with God and enjoy creation the second time is when God is called the Holy One of Israel which is a relational term right so God is set apart the holiest one of all and he makes his holiness known by drawing near to Israel in relationship, and then by drawing near to the broken world in the person of Jesus Christ to set things right. So maybe what it means to be the holy people of God is not to be removed from the world, but to be set apart by our seeking justice and righteousness and putting love into action. So when Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself with the two greatest commandments, it's this very active vision, right? That we are to be known, and God longed for Israel to be known for seeking justice and righteousness. Okay, one more and then we can dive in. Shalom. I, took a, I brought out my southern version for y'all. Shalom, y'all. <laughs> I found this at Berry College uh, in Georgia. So, shalom, another one of those Hebrew words that's very hard to translate. It means peace technically, but it's a much more robust vision than we're used to. Um, you can see flourishing of all creation as God humans, and the rest of creation live in harmony, wholeness, justice, and delight. So people say this is one way to capture God's vision for creation, that God wanted this sort of shalom vision, this whole flourishing, where the humans that he created lived in harmony with creatures, with each other, with God, where there was abundant life, where there was flourishing, and it would then have been a just creation because everything was right and injustice we'll talk about this more in a moment I'll just say quickly results when humans fail to use their power to seek the flourishing of others in God's world so maybe that makes more sense if we just move right into creation so we think of this shalom vision that when God created you had this vision for the world rightly ordered Augustine would say Everything moving towards love of God and manifesting love. And in that, having flourishing. And humans were given a role within that vision to steward creation. So some scholars would say, Shalom, you can think of as having four parts. There was right relationship with God, which we've talked about at the heart of righteousness. And there was right relationship within ourselves, and there was right relationship between humans, and there was right relationship with the created world. And that was supposed to be an active, attentive relationship, seeking what's best for the world. The reason power is so important is because when God gave us dominion, that's a power word. That's God saying, God had the power to create, right? And he could have hoarded his power. Think of King Herod when Jesus was born. He hears rumors of an infant king. Does he share his power? No. He orders the death of every newborn baby to try to hoard his power. Right? God does not operate that way. God, as king of all, says, I'm going to share my power. I'm going to entrust my power into the hands of humans. And I'm asking them to use that power to seek shalom, to to treat this world, to steward this world and all its relationships according to my vision of what's right and good and just. So we were entrusted with this and it had these different layers to it. It's a very active vision. And you could say that in the fall, we took that power, and instead of using it for good, we thought maybe there's a way to use it to make ourselves better. So one way to think about this visually is to think if the, if the posture of the garden was receiving, God created, God gave everything, life and beauty and food and wholeness and stewardship and power, and our posture was receive, be grateful, and offer back to serve God and serve the world, tend creation according to God's vision. This moment with the fruit is the first time that humans took instead of receiving. Taking for themselves. And then think about that hoarding image, right? In curvatus inces, this is this classic way to say that, being turned in on ourselves. So instead of receiving an offering back, we took and it ushered in this posture of hoarding. Maybe this is really better this way over God's way. Rather than trusting that God's way is the best way, including for ourselves. So ironically, in this moment, right, they thought it would be better for them, but it wasn't. It's actually, we find our true selves as we are in relation to God. So this posture that God wants for his people, and notice it's communal, is to receive and offer back in this active vision of stewarding the world. Some Some thinkers would say that that called a steward creation includes the cultivation of culture and its institutions so what so even if there was no fall would we have figured out ways to eat yes ways to communicate would we have made art and dance would we have traveled right, the things that we associate with culture you go to another culture and you eat and you enjoy the music and the food and you travel right these aspects of culture would perhaps have, rem- have needed cultivating even before the fall. So that part of that call to steward creation was to say, we're going to live, we have to figure out how to live here. How are we going to live together here, right? So part of our calling then as God's people is to be in relationship with God and to tend to all those other pieces, our relationships with each other, our relationship with the actual created world, and our relationship with the structures of the world. Now, often, I shouldn't say often, fairly often, (laughs) when we preach the good news, we focus on that individual relationship with God. And I don't want to minimize that, and that really is central. But when we look at the story of Scripture, we see that that relationship with God had this overflowingness to it, right? That impacts our relationship with others and with the rest of the world. And so, when we get to the Christian life that will also be true, right? So see how the storyline kind of carries through. Okay. So there's a lot more we could say about all of these pieces of the story, of course. Um, But a significant part of the story is God's covenant relationship with Israel. And this matters in part because it shows us more and more about what God wants. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 really aren't that long, right? I mean, how, do we re- how much do we really know just from those pieces? We need the rest of the story and ultimately Jesus Christ to fill out the picture for us. And remember, we looked before, there's a lot of the story in there between the fall and the coming of Jesus. So we see in God's covenant relationship with Israel is a continuation of the storyline. God still wants a people. And he calls them and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's not just an individual relationship with God thing, right? He doesn't just say, well, live on this cloud and play harps and dwell with me, right? <laughs> he actually gives them a lot of laws, a lot of very obscure laws that we sometimes struggle to make sense of. Well, Part of it is because it's in continuity with that creation vision. He actually wants his people to live a certain way in the world. And it's a way of saying, in this broken, sinful context, how can you live in a way that's promoting, seeking justice, righteousness, shalom, putting this love into action, being my holy people? Now, sometimes we think of the law as primarily or maybe even only showing us how fall, far short we fall, right? That it's got a negative purpose to show us we can't keep the law and we need a savior. I'm going to bring in some Reformed theology here. John Calvin would say, yes, that's a very important use of the law, but not the only one. That, that's what use he calls the mirror. We look at the law and we say, oh, I can't keep it. I fall, I, I fall short. I need Jesus. And that's important. But there's also a use of the law, actual laws, that are good in a civil society. He calls that sort of like a bridle, helping to rein in injustice. And those civil laws are really important. But they don't get at the fullness of what God wants either. The fullness of what God wants is complete redemption of everything that has gone wrong. And the laws of the Old Testament actually give us a window into what God wants. So they have a positive use to help us see more and more about the heart of God. My favorite law, is it okay to have a favorite law? Uh, God says, okay, someone needs a loan, and they come to you and they say, "I I need to borrow something, but I only have this blanket, it's my only possession. And you say, okay, I'll lend you this, and I'll take your blanket as collateral. The law says, if dusk comes, and they haven't paid you back, make sure to give them the blanket back so they're not cold at night. I mean, isn't that beautiful? That's the, the detail of which God cares about people, right? It's a beautiful picture of God's attentiveness. So there are a lot of laws about worship and sacrifice because our relationship with God matters and we needed atonement. And there are a lot of laws governing our interactions with each other economically and suggesting how judges and things ought to work politically, right? And commerce and sexual purity and how to treat the land and how to give the land rest. It's a full active vision because God's vision all along was for a people who would actively live and seek his will and ways in the world. And we see that carried through scripture. Uh, I was going to read one passage. Let me see. Okay, so that I, I summarize, return the blanket by sunset. He will thank you, and it will be, be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Right, so how you treat one another is a righteous act. Then it goes on. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien or immigrant living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Right, so treating others fairly and rightly, if you don't do that, that's a sin. Right, this is very communal, social understanding of righteousness. Okay, I need to speed up a little bit. How can you shortchange Jesus, though, right? The center of the story. <sighs> so the story really hinges on Jesus. And I think the, the most dangerous part of telling the story the way I do is it makes it seem like Jesus doesn't matter until we get here. But we know from the New Testament that all things were created through Christ and that everything came into being through him and that he's been part of the story all along. And he helps us, again, more and more understand the parts that went before. One thing about justice, and sometimes I know people are, are nervous about justice because it seems like people who care about justice sometimes throw out important doctrines, and this historically has happened. But justice actually requires judgment. When things are not right, you want them to be set right. I'm flying in from Michigan. I don't know if you followed the Michigan State Larry Nassar story. This medical doctor who abused hundreds of gymnasts, young girls all the way up, right? The country is crying for justice. They want things to be set right. Justice is setting things right. And in the Old Testament, there are so many verses where the people of God are crying out, saying we're suffering or we see suffering, we see injustice, come, judge, come and make things right. So we don't want to let go of judgment. We want the cross (laughs) because we want Jesus Christ to come and set right everything that went wrong. We want him to make it right. We want him to share his righteousness with us. And we want to remember that whatever the work of Christ does has to address everything that went wrong, right? So my relationship with God is ruptured in the fall, but so is my relationship with my neighbor, And so is my internal wholeness. And so is my relationship with the created world. And so are the structures and institutions that flow out of that. So whatever Jesus Christ does, it has to address everything that went wrong. And because he's God in the flesh, who makes all things right, who is reconciling all things, who's making all things new, those are all straight scripture passages, we can trust that the work of Jesus Christ sets things right. He has justified us. Amen. But he has also set right everything in the world that's broken. And we do our work in the midst of that good news. Which is why I didn't point out, for the sake of time, I I have paired these different chapters with practices, which we can talk about in the discussion time if we want. But this one, they're all really important. But this one, I think, is so important. Because I think whether it's discipleship or justice work, We have this tendency to think or want to do it all ourselves. I don't know if we want to, but uh, the American hero, right? The Superman who goes out and saves the day. And if you're not right there, when the speeding train comes by, the woman on the tracks dies, right? That's deep in our American psyche. That is not a biblical vision of how this works. Biblically, we don't need to be the saviors because Jesus Christ has already come and saved the day. But my first picture, think of me alone on the mountaintop, that was a lot of hard work to get there. And that was my vision of the Christian life. I am saved by grace, and then I'm going to work hard for Jesus. I'm going to get up and have my quiet times. I'm going to do as much evangelism outreach as I can. And I'm going to get there, (laughs) to that mountaintop. I didn't have any notion of grace (laughs) in sort of that follow-up. And that is not faithful to Scripture. Scripture is... You are already beloved and chosen. Guess what? You're already holy. You're already saints. You are holy people because of the work I have done to make you holy. Now live as my people. So we're not earning. We're not striving to get into the family. We're in the family by the grace of God in Christ. And then the Spirit empowers us, enables us to live out this calling of what it means to be God's people. The order in Scripture, when you look at all the places where Paul says, do this, don't do this, put to death this, live this way, it always starts with identity. Identity always comes first. You are my beloved. You are my saints. You are my chosen people. Therefore, put to death everything that goes against you and seek these things. So we've seen from the story of Scripture, God had a vision for a people to live in relationship with him and seek shalom and justice and flourishing and rightness. And that's us. <laughs> By the grace of God, we are now God's people and we still are given that calling. And now we have the Holy Spirit's power to enable us to use our power to seek what's right and good in the world. So think about that posture, receiving and offering back. This is who we're supposed to be as disciples, receiving grace, receiving righteousness, being made just, not for my own deep roots so I can get deeper and deeper, but so that I can be restored to right relationship with God and seek what's right in the world. So that's where we are in the story. The church on a kingdom mission, sanctified, set apart, made holy, not to be removed over here, but to be made known by seeking justice, righteousness, putting love into action. We're gonna, I'm, I'm only going to say that much because we'll spend some time looking at what that can be. Um, but of course, we know the story's not over yet. We're still waiting for Christ to return and to fully usher in his kingdom. And this is a hard place to be, the waiting place, where we know and long for it all to be made right. We believe in Christ that has happened, and yet we're still in that already-not-yet place. And we need, to, we need to know that Christ will return and set all things right, in part so we can persevere in hope. Because otherwise, it's really hard to persevere. The brokenness, the darkness seems overwhelming. And it's hard to remember that it's not all on our shoulders. This is where things like keeping the Sabbath and worshiping are places where we get these glimpses of what God wants for the world and that God is the one at work. And then we're invited to join in, but it's not all on our shoulders. Otherwise, it's not only not sustainable, it's not faithful. So one way that Christians are talking about what it looks like to sort of live out this calling here and now is drawing on this verse from Jeremiah. Seek the welfare of the city. Welfare is shalom. Seek the shalom of the city. A lot of Christians, both scholars and practitioners, are saying maybe this is the posture that it would be most helpful for us to take on. This sort of exile posture. So this verse is spoken to Jeremiah to share with the people of God when they're in exile. They're in Babylon. They've left Israel, and they are having to say, what does it look like to live in this foreign place? And as a lot of Christians are trying to make sense of living in America right now and what's going on and is it a Christian nation or is it not, some are saying, what if we adopt this exile posture and this posture of servanthood? Seek the welfare of the city. The idea was Babylon's not going to be Israel. Israel. But you can still live here as a distinctive people as my holy people and part of that means seeking what's good for this city not just for yourselves like trees right so what if we were to take that posture today and what are some ways that would look well i know you're very committed to the great commission here And I believe it's really important to go into all the world and fulfill the Great Commission. And I'm also suggesting that one way to fill the Great Commission is to think about being disciples who intentionally engage all the different layers within our social structure with kingdom vision. So right where we are, what does it look like to have this active vision of seeking justice and righteousness? So let's try to unpack what that could look like. Amy Sherman, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, she has this great book called Kingdom Calling. She's looking at the faith and work ministry movement. Maybe you're familiar with that. Trying to say most Christians spend 90% of their time working. How do we equip disciples in the workplace? So she looks at the ministries and their curriculum and their focus, and she says most of them focus on ethics. So as a Christian, this is going to impact your ethical decisions. Say your company wants you to say you made more profit than you really did and you refuse to do that because of your Christian convictions. Or evangelism. It's a way to be light in the darkness, to to meet non-Christians and try to share your faith or encourage faith through Bible studies. I added excellence because that was a big theme in my circles when I was an undergrad. Live your calling with excellence and people will see your good deeds and try to figure out why do you do this, what's your conviction behind it, and come to know Christ. No, none of these are bad, but what she's saying is what would it look like to say, right within our callings, can we seek justice and shalom? Can we be attentive to where people are suffering from injustice or not flourishing and, and then see that as actually part of our callings as Christians, is to engage that with attention both to individuals and institutions. I'm going to expand that a little bit because she's focusing on paid calling. I think this is actually a call for all of us in all of our callings. So whether it's your career or in marriage or family or community, church, citizens, how do we... Think about seeking the kingdom, seeking first God's kingdom, justice, and righteousness. Okay, I think it's hard to wrap our minds around institutions. And when it comes to that statement on social justice that I mentioned earlier, with some concerns about the social justice movement, I think one of the reasons, and there has been a divide within American Christianity, about how much are we attentive to social structures, and how much are we attentive to individual sin? And I'm trying to suggest that we can hold them together. But institutions are hard to see. Culture overall is hard to see, right? I know a lot of you have backgrounds in missions, and it's sometimes when you go to another place, we were talking just at the beginning, you go to another place, you realize, I have a particular relationship with time that not everyone has. Interesting. (laughs) You start to see that there are cultural aspects to how we live and inhabit time and space. But culture, speaking sociologically, is meant to be invisible. It's a a force that holds a people together that you're not really supposed to see. And it's when you're in times of transition that you tend to see it. And institutions are kind of like that too. They're hard to see. And I would suggest they're even harder to see if they work for you. So just take a moment and think about maybe three to five people you're closest to in your life and pull them in your head how do you know them anyone willing to say how do you know some of the people that come to mind family members and family so the family you could say is an institution through church that would be another institution through school right, education and the educational institutions, right, so we tend to go through life and think, oh, I have all these friends, or I have people I love, and we don't necessarily think about the structures that enable us to know them and come to know them, but our life is shaped by institutional and structural realities, and there, those are, I think, I would say that's part of Creation and that calling that we were inherited to create and develop these structures. But because we're broken, sinful people, we can use that power, instead of using it to seek good, to seek what's best for us or our group or our people. And not always knowingly. Sometimes knowingly, but not always knowingly. So how do we pay attention to the structural layers? So Sister Helen Prejean, who's known for her death row advocacy has this image. He says, if you're walking by and you see babies drowning in the river, yes, you should run in and rescue those babies. But at some point, someone should say, what's happening upstream? How did those babies get in the water? And then some people need to go up there and figure out what's going on up there. right? That's sort of what I'm talking about. Using our callings with eyes open to say, okay, we have the sense from Scripture in Christ that God cares about the world and seeking justice and righteousness in it. And hopefully as we meet people, we're saying, well, where are they suffering or struggling or where are the places of brokenness or injustice? And then hopefully we can say, well, what's behind that? How do we get behind that? And with kingdom imagination say, what could we do about that? And Christians have been at the forefront of this historically. You may know this, penitentiaries, hospitals, these structures, institutions that shape our lives, a lot of them have Christian roots because Christians were the ones willing to enter into the broken places. To put it another way, our daughter, we were, I was telling her about Mother Teresa when she was five, and I was trying to explain this you know, tremendous acts of service she did, and, and then all of a sudden she said, well, what happened when she died? In other words, if it was all on her... Then, when she died, who was taking care of the people she left behind? But thankfully, Mother Teresa invested in institutions, right? So that there are still things in place that can carry on that work. So, how do we think about that? Okay, we're gonna try to do some concrete examples here. Okay, movie cars. Anyone familiar with the movie cars? Okay, about a, a car, Disney Pixar movie. He's very snobby, he thinks he's too good for small towns, he gets, he gets stuck in the small town Radiator Springs and after a lot of time comes to love the people, slash cars, of this town. Then he gets discovered, rescued, he goes and wins his race. And the question is, what does it mean for him to love the people of Radiator Springs? They have been left behind economically. Route 66 was put in, no one goes to them, they are suffering they have no economic infrastructure. No one's coming to support them. You can see glimpses of their businesses that no one comes to. And and Lightning McQueen could have said, I love you guys. But he doesn't. After he wins, he comes back to the town and invests in the infrastructure of the town. He moves his headquarters here. He gets all his car friends to buy their tires. He helps revitalize the hotel industry, right? He understands that to love them, to put his love into action for them is to attend to the daily lived realities of their life, not just their spirits. To put it more pointedly, my co-author talking about five and six-year-old girls in brothels says, I mean, no one would say, I'm going to preach the gospel to you and I hope you come to know Jesus as Savior and I'm going to leave you in that brothel. Right, We wouldn't say that. We understand that to love those girls is to attend to their lived realities. So what does it look like to have that perspective everywhere we go, right where we are? And I believe we can do this with all of our callings. And here's why. The Thriving Cities Project at the University of Virginia has said, what does it look like for cities to thrive? What does it really take for a city to be a place where everyone is thriving? So they've come up with these endowments And with our institutional lenses, we can see how these endowments match up with institutions and they should match up with something within each of us and the people in our ministries. So the true. For a city to flourish, it needs places where people can learn what's true. Educational institutions, perhaps also religious institutions or religious schools, places we come to know and learn the good social mores and ethics again religious institutions you could think girl scouts and boy scouts sort of character shaping entities that help invite us into what's good in the world the beautiful right have you noticed that college campuses are often beautiful or that cities often have memorials and monuments and green spaces central park right this is something we've invested in over time there's something about beauty god didn't have to create a garden could have created concrete block cell structures for us to live into but he didn't right we have this sense from scripture that and even the temple right that god cares about beauty and that we can attend to beauty so whether through art or aesthetics or design this is a place people need beauty to thrive and it's a place we can contribute the prosperous economic life businesses and arrangements that allow for people to live and live and en- have enough to thrive on or to live economically to help them thrive the just and well ordered this is probably my favorite because it includes sort of things you might obviously think of like laws that work and elected officials and civil servants but also things like plumbing and roads <laughs> Right now, if you followed the Flint water crisis, but we have often taken for granted in the U.S. that when you turn on a tap water, we'll get clean water. Those of you who lived elsewhere know that is not something to take for granted. And now we're realizing that our infrastructure maybe has some challenges. To understand that contributing to something like the flowing of pipes that work or roads that enable people to get home or to get the health care that they need, right? That this is actually a way of serving and contributing through your engineering skills and your plumbing skills. The sustainable, natural and physical health. So health care industries would be here as well as ecological issues, parks, things like that. Gardening could be in the beautiful or the sustainable. So what I love about these categories is I think they expand our notion of what does it mean to contribute to people's thriving? And is there a way for each of our callings, not necessarily paid, sometimes we get the privilege of that, but not very many people get in the history and globally get to do what they love to do with their paid callings. But in all areas, is there some way that we can say, well, where does my gift set align? with what it takes for people to flourish. And what am I seeing about the shortcomings? Emmanuel Katongale and Chris Rice, they each work on reconciliation in different ways, came together to write a book. And they, they say this way, the story of the ministry of reconciliation always begins in the ministry of everyday life with someone responding to a gap. Responding to a gap is not about starting everywhere, but starting somewhere. The challenge is for each of us to be faithful, to discern and respond to the gap God puts before us. So what is it that you see that maybe someone else can't see? There's a gap. Things are not what God intended. Things are falling short of shalom. And where might you be able to enter in and imaginatively think through some ways to engage? So I'll give some ideas and then we can move into our discussion time. So these are practical ideas um, and I'm sure there are many more more local to this community. These are drawn from the things I know. Um, one thing we do at the seminary where I teach is called the community kitchen. So one of our professors noticed that when it comes to homelessness in our town, there are places for people to get breakfast and dinner, but nothing for lunch. And he started to think, you know, we have a kitchen in the seminary, we have an empty building, or an empty room, and we don't use it. So he's kind of he's using his really citizenship or community calling here. It's not necessarily as a professor, but he's seeing a gap and he's thinking creatively, how can we bring these institutions together? I could feed a few people, but if we create this structure, right, then we have a way to engage and as a seminary, how great to be engaged with our community and to have open doors, right? So we now have every day, Monday through Friday and then breakfast on Saturday, partnered with a local nonprofit. So they do a lot of the inside work, and we provide the space and hopefully um, people to join for lunch. Ready for school is an interesting one. Um, education and inequality in education is a big issue. So some people in our town noticed that uh, there's, there was consistently a, a group of kids not ready to start kindergarten. And the data shows that if, you start, if you're not ready to start kindergarten, you never catch up. You're behind throughout your educational time. So they were able to create this collaborative partnership because the businesses in town, they want a good workforce down the road. So they partnered with businesses, they partnered with churches to say, hey, do you want to provide some play groups? They partnered with doctors to say, hey, every time a child comes in, will you give a free book and a pamphlet on promoting literacy and learning? They partnered with preschools and have preschool scholarships, right? So they saw the gap and they're trying to go upstream, right, to say, Fifteen years from now, we have a population who's struggling and they don't know how to engage the community. We don't know how to help. What if we go backwards and think creatively as Christians and do these kind of partnerships? Um, Culture works. a pastor put his kids in music classes and realized, this is expensive. What about all the other kids in my town who maybe don't have the resources? Is music part of beauty? Is music something that's good? So he created a nonprofit that helps kids from all different backgrounds come together and engage different arts classes, and it's become sort of a mentoring spot and a place for kids to get together from different backgrounds, and for some kids who are always getting into trouble, say, for doodling on their page, they've been able to say, hey, there's actually work (laughs) that comes out of graphic design or graphic novels, and it's put some people on completely different paths. Now, all of those are things sort of starting on top of things. Um, Business. This one is actually from Winston-Salem. If anyone's from there, there's a um, Christian, a man who was inheriting a family business, became a Christian in college, and was trying to figure out, what does that look like? How do I hold these together? And so, some of you may know more details if you're from Winston-Salem, but my understanding is that he owns car dealerships, and he figured out that there's a lot of unjust practices that go along with car dealerships. For example... Often people in the lowest economic parts of a city pay the most. One, they don't know that they have the power to barter. Whereas I know, I do my research and I go and I'm only going to pay this number because I assume I have power in the situation. So there's inequity in cost and then also in how the loans are structured and payment on loans. So we came up with a way to distribute the dealerships themselves and do the pricing where everyone pays the same. And then he also realized that some of his employees make more so they can put more money away for their kids. And, you know, maybe by training, it's right that there are different salaries. But he said, I'm going to make a covenant that I will put money in a college fund for every employee every year. And it's not dependent on how much you make. It's, a, it's sort of every, for every year you work here. And then they do a lot as a business to engage. They help to start an after-school tutoring program. They help support the arts. So he's really thinking, trying to think creatively, not saying, I can't be a business person because I'm a Christian, but working within his calling to say, I want to see where the gaps are within my employees and where they're not thriving within the city, and how can I use my power to try to address that and live out my calling creatively for the kingdom. I think that's probably enough examples. So I'll end with that, and we have time for discussion. So thanks for following the journey with me.